Welcome back to the Henry's Uncle podcast. Today we have Dr. Andrew Mendenhall from Central City Concern. Dr. Mendenhall is the uh, chief medical officer there. Uh, we touch on an array of topics today, ranging from the biology of addiction, uh, mental health, the many roads to recovery, and what he and his organization are doing to improve our community. Awesome. Uh, we are live today. Uh, really, really excited. Um, it's our honor to have uh, Dr. Andrew Mendenhall from Central City Concern on the show today. Welcome. Thank, Thank you for you, coming for uh, your time here, Dr. Mendenhall. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I first heard you speak last year in Bend, Oregon um, at an opioid conference, um, and the way you spoke was just uh, really kind of hit me because it's you're so passionate about it, um, talking about addiction, the biology about addiction. And uh, when Greg introduced us again a few months ago, I was really, really excited. And when you mentioned podcast, I was like, you know, hell yeah, this is amazing. So um, really kind of just want to dive into it today. Uh, you know, you can introduce yourself, what you do at Central City Concern, and then really just kind of dive into addiction. Thanks, Eric. Um, I think my goal today would be to help everyone develop a deeper understanding of how substance use disorders manifest and uh, work to reduce stigma through developing a deeper understanding that this is, in short, a chronic brain disease. It is treatable. People do get better. People do recover. And it's also something that people hold an incredible amount of shame regarding, primarily because we don't talk enough about how common substance use disorders are uh, in the United States. Mm -hmm. So that would be my goal today in terms of, of our conversation on this podcast. And Sounds through perfect. that understanding, my hope would be that people that are actively suffering or know someone that's actively suffering will um, hopefully feel inclined mm -hmm. to reach out for help, reach out for assistance, or have a deeper understanding of what options exist to help more people be successful in engaging in recovery. And one thing to set the stage, if you want to maybe talk about your role at Central City Concern and what Central City Concern, how it helps support our communities here in uh, Portland would be great. Absolutely, Greg. So I am honored to serve as the chief medical officer of Central City Concern. We are an agency that is now in our 41st year of operation, and our mission is to end homelessness in our region, and uh, we have developed an integrative model of offering housing, healthcare services, and employment services uh, to people within uh, the Portland and Tri-Counties area. And we work in close collaboration uh, with county resources, with other community nonprofit treatment resources and healthcare resources. And um, we are proud to see uh, that we make a difference um, in the face of an overwhelming epidemic mm -hmm. uh, that stems from untreated or undertreated substance use disorder, um, untreated or undertreated severe mental health conditions. And um, all of that really coalesces over the last 20 years in the midst of, of a housing crisis, right, related to uh, the cost of housing within this region mm -hmm. that increases the probability uh, that those that are marginalized or suffering 
um, are more likely to suffer uh, from an episode of homelessness. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Um, so uh, I think one of the reasons, uh, again, we were going to talk about today is uh, to help end the stigma is really understanding what addiction is. So if you can tell the audience, you know, um, about addiction, the biology of addiction, how it occurs, um, to really help them understand that it is a chronic brain disease, um, I think that will help a lot because I know many people still think it's um, the person who is suffering from a substance use disorder. It's their fault for first taking the pill or, or whatever it may be, having that sip of alcohol. Um, again, they put the blame on them. So I think really helping them understand what addiction is will help them out too. Absolutely. Um, I appreciate, Eric, your call out regarding that concept of what, what I refer to as the neo-Calvinistic view of uh, how people develop a substance use disorder. The idea that, that pleasure-seeking, um, that all human beings are biologically wired to do, uh, we pleasure-seek, and um, at least in my belief system, and um, there's a lot of science to back this up, um, the reward systems of the brain evolved to reward two survival-based behaviors. One is food, and the other is reproductive activity. And um, we know that uh, those two behaviors are directly related to the survival of our species. And so if we follow the reward pathways in the brain, the root of any sort of reward-based behavior has to do with how an activity or an action, including taking a substance uh, that is rewarding, like nicotine or alcohol or opioids, stimulants, um, leads to the release of the same neurochemicals that get released in the center part of our brain in proportion, or rather out of proportion, to uh, those signals being triggered through food um, or sex. And when we're talking about uh, which chemicals, we're talking about the chemical dopamine, which is the primary reward neurotransmitter. And we're talking about a part of the brain that exists in human beings that's identical structurally all the way back evolutionarily to um, amphibians. And, and so I'm not here to step on anybody's belief system, right? But what we know is that amphibians, uh, like salamanders, have the exact same reward structure in their brains as we do in ours as human beings. Um, and when salamanders warm their bodies on a warm rock, eat, or engage in sex, they get a big surge of dopamine uh, in their midbrain that rewards that behavior. Now, for us as human beings, um, we have something called a neocortex, right? And that's the, the, the wrapping of our midbrain that makes us, if you will, us. It makes us human beings, gives us the capacity to lay down memories, gives us the capacity to engage in higher levels of decision-making and executive function. And most importantly, with respect to the development of substance use disorder, our brains are incredibly efficient at remembering things that feel good. So I like to think of uh, how much I enjoy thinking about my mom's uh, pie that I'm going to have uh, <laughs> in our upcoming Thanksgiving holiday, right? Um, and the last time I checked, and I'll be a little uh, tongue-in-cheek here, you know, there are eight and a half billion people in the world, so human beings uh, clearly like to engage in reproductive activity. We have a lot of reward associated with that. 
And where it gets a little scary neurobiologically is if we think about food and sex on a scale of one to 50 in terms of dopamine reward, substances of abuse have a reward scale that ranges between 50 and 10,000. Wow. So we're talking about substances, right? Substances, and depending on the substance, Mm -hmm. the background of the brain of the person using the substance, and then the potency and the mechanism of administration, right? The difference between taking something orally, smoking or sniffing something, Mm -hmm. um, or injecting something, the range of reward is something that our brains did not evolve to see. And a one-liner that I like to say, or maybe this is a couple-liner that I like to say to my patients suffering from opioid use disorder, is that really our brains did not evolve to see IV opioids unless we are coming out of an operating room having just had a major surgery or dying on a battlefield. Heaven forbid either circumstance, right? And, And pivoting back to why people use substances in the first place, right? Oftentimes it's, it's, it's just experimentation. It's yeah. the idea that there's a novelty, right? And we know that risk-taking young adults uh, are going to have a tendency to take a little bit more risk. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, there, there, are, there are no clear archetypes of who is more of a risk-taker with respect to substances. But what we do know is that uh, young adults and adults suffering from depression, suffering from anxiety, those that have had traumatic experiences oftentimes don't feel normal Mm -hmm. on a good day. And there is a higher risk that individuals that don't feel normal on a good day as young adults or as adults are more likely to go seeking relief through the use of substances. It's funny. Sorry to cut you off. It's funny you say normal because my, my brother, uh, that's what he would say because, you know, he always talked about the racing thoughts in his head um, and whatever it may be. But when he took like a, a Xanax or whatever substance he had, um, he would say, it makes me feel normal. And for me, someone, you know, who's not addicted, it's it's hard to understand that because I, I don't, I don't, you know, I just don't get it because I, I haven't experienced it yet. And so it's, it's, you know, like you say, it's very interesting that word normal, because again, it just, it helps him just cope with everyday life. It helps him just live, um, and not stress out so much. So, yeah. I appreciate that reflection. I would say that, that many people I work with tell me that, um, just feeling different Mm -hmm. is desirable. If your baseline is crummy, right? If there's anxious feelings or thoughts, if there's yeah. rum, rumination or repetitive thoughts, right? If there's just depression, anything that changes that baseline can sometimes register as uh, relief. Yeah. And, and so when we think about substance use disorders, it's really about harmful relief seeking. Mm-hmm. And, and the condition is stigmatized when we think about people saying, oh, well, that's just selfish pleasure taking, yep. right? It's a big difference between that concept, right? And I've, I've met very few people with a substance use disorder that, that frame it all in just a desire to, to get high and feel loaded, yep. right? In truth, 80 to 90% of people who develop a severe substance use disorder have a baseline history of trauma or a baseline history of an untreated or undertreated mental health diagnosis. It's yeah. incredibly ubiquitous. 
That's so, a great distinction to make. I think, you know, when people try and label it as a moral failure, you know, I, it's that whole, you know, what is your baseline, right? We, sometimes you can't get outside of the concept of what your baseline is in another person's. But, you know, I think that's a good distinction to make. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate that. And one of the things that we associate with substance use disorders is this idea of lack of control, right? That somehow mm-hmm. it's the responsibility of the person right. uh, who started themselves down this pathway to be able to control. And what we know is that substance use disorders have differing levels of harm or impact. And the amount of impact is really what differentiates the difference between a mild, a moderate, or a severe substance use disorder. And people with mild substance use disorder typically hold down a job. They're typically showing up for their family. Um, but they're attached in some way where there is some type of negative consequence associated with their use or there's craving. Yep. There's thoughts about using, thoughts about it would be better or it will be better when I can uh, pick back up again, right? And, and so for many people, that's what starts them moving along a pathway into a much deeper end of the pool. We associate a lot of substance use disorder with the person that we see um, under the bridge, right? Yes. Or uh, many of the patients that we care for uh, suffer from homelessness, right? Um, but I've spent a large part of my career as an addiction medicine specialist taking care of physicians, attorneys, judges, um, in particular anesthesiologists who are just as ill mm-hmm. um, from a substance use disorder perspective, as many of the people that I'm taking care of um, who are living on the street using intravenous heroin. Mm-hmm. It just looks different. Yep. It's packaged in a, in a different way. The, the emotional suffering, the pain, and the struggle, and most importantly, the shame that individuals who no longer feel control over their behavior, who have developed what we refer to as uh, compulsive use despite harm, that's really the hallmark of a severe substance use disorder. And that's what we most typically associate. And I think, unfortunately, perpetuates a lot of the stigma associated yeah. with talking about substance use disorder. I like the way you described it. It's about how it's been packaged, right? You know, you have your white collar uh, people, you know, taking a pill. Then you have those in, that are usually homeless, you know, intravenously at times. And there is there can be that cutover point. I mean, in some of our other uh, discussions we've had, you know, the cutover can be really easy. You know, I mean, it's just everywhere on the streets. And so I think, um, you know, realizing that this can affect anybody and anybody around you, that is a really big point we want to drive home. I think that's uh, an important call out, Greg. When when I consider um, the fact that there's so much misinformation about how to actually get better or how to get treatment, um, I think it's important, again, to, to, to reiterate that this is a treatable disease state, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a set of learned behavior, right? It's a set of learned behavior. And having done this work now for more than 15 years in a variety of different environments, um, there is uh, a very robust and very uh, important foundation for how people get better from substance use disorder, and, and that is the community-based recovery environments of AA and NA and Women for Sobriety and Refuge Recovery. Um, And those are just a few of of the big ones, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, And their accessory uh, community-based recovery paths for family members of those afflicted by uh, 
the disease of addiction or substance use disorder, and that would be Narconon or Al-Anon yeah. in particular. So this is the foundation of this work um, that really took hold with the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous back in 1935 um, by a group of uh, primarily male um, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants uh, from the Midwest. And uh, thankfully, the 12-step recovery community has grown to be a worldwide community that has a positive impact on millions of people worldwide every year, and that there are millions of quality-adjusted life years, as we would say in a public health terminology, millions of years of human life that have been saved through engagement in traditional 12-step uh, recovery and community-based recovery yeah. environments. Um, the challenge is that that's not all the story. And, um, and yet, up until the last 10 or 15 years, that's been the primary mechanism whereby um, the addiction treatment industry has been heavily weighted um, in an overrepresented position around 12-step recovery, community-based recovery. And that simply uh, is not consistent with the science, um, nor is it consistent with a broad population-based approach to caring for people with substance use disorder. So what is the gold standard um, in terms of, uh, you know, like we hear about medication-assisted treatment? Is that a gold standard? Uh, and for someone who's suffering from like an opioid use disorder, um, can you talk about that a little bit in terms of, you know, trying to get people into recovery? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will, Eric, take like one step back sure. and, and say that um, whatever a patient or an individual feels inclined to lean into mm -hmm. um, is what's most appropriate for them. Yeah. So if there is an affinity or an affiliation and somebody feels um, inclined to engage in a, a treatment resource that's out there, that is the right one for them, mm -hmm. uh, most importantly. What we know is that there is a variety of, of uh, different traditions and different recovery cultures, if you will, that either do or do not embrace uh, the use of medications in support of recovery. And um, thankfully, there's been a real evolution in terms of a broadening and an embrace of the science um, at the community-based level. And um, the science is so robust that um, state regulators and the treatment industry has really been transformed over the last decade in particular in response to um, what I refer to as treatment non-response, right? It's not treatment failure, it's treatment non-response, meaning people who make a big investment in treatment and they leave and they're not successful. And, um, and so when we're talking about a condition like opioid use disorder, which for your listeners means everything from prescription opioid pills to um, the use of heroin, uh, there is a clear body of evidence that reflects that using medication as a tool to help support people in recovery shows vastly improved outcomes. And those outcomes are um, as follows. Uh, the best study that's out there looked at a large group of people um, in the public health uh, insurance arena um, and individuals receiving medication-assisted treatment relapsed 800% less during their first six months compared to people receiving no medication-assisted treatment at all. And, and roughly the difference was a 50% month-over-month relapse rate compared to a 6 or 7% month-over-month relapse rate. 
And I'm very passionate about the provision of evidence-based treatment to um, patients suffering from all types of substance use disorder, but in yeah. particular opioid use disorder, because single-use relapse um, can can cause fatal overdose. Yep. Yeah. How difficult is it for you know treatments to be able to get that uh, medication-assisted treatment for? Thankfully, um, it's improving on a national level. Uh, there's definitely more access as the evidence has continued to be brought forward and as states and jurisdictions and insurance companies in particular have demanded that treatment providers provide access. Um, in fact, here in the state of Oregon, uh, it became a requirement beginning July 1 of 2018 uh, in the residential treatment environments for patients to be provided the option to receive and remain on all forms of medication-assisted treatment during their residential wow. stays. That's, That's great. great to hear. That's very good to hear. Better uh, late than never, in yes. my opinion, yes. uh, recognizing that 2018 uh, was a good solid 20 years into the opioid epidemic yeah. in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we go back, and you know, when people talk about MAT, you know, they think it's a crux, you know, substituting one um, form of substance for something else. What, first of all, could you talk about MAT in terms of, like, say, methadone, Suboxone? What does that do? Uh, so when someone takes that, what does that do for, to the person who has an opioid opioid use disorder? Absolutely. So. Um, I, I would also like to call out, I want to make sure we talk about medications uh, applied to alcohol use disorder as okay. well, yeah. um, recognizing that um, there is so much stigma for patients with an opioid use disorder um, in certain arenas, taking medicine to support their recovery, um, that that it's easy for us to over-focus on opioid use disorder and recognize that um, alcohol use disorder yeah. as a problem for our nation actually impacts vastly yeah. more people. Uh, so pardon me for, for directing us in that no, direction. Totally, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to make sure we, yes. we put a marker down on that. So when we're thinking about opioid use disorder, there are three classes of medications that um, are utilized to help support people in their recovery. And the first is an opioid blocker class. And those are medicines like naltrexone. Um, and naltrexone is the generic name, and it comes in uh, both an oral pill form and it comes in a once-a-month injectable form. And opioid blockers work by touching the receptors and blocking the receptors. And um, the recovery community as a whole really hoped that opioid blockers were going to be more effective uh, clinically than they really are. Most patients don't stay on them um, because they simply have the option to go back and, and, and pick back up. And that really yeah. speaks to the fact that when you block those receptors, you're not actually addressing the biology of craving in, mm -hmm. the, way that, in the way that we had hoped. Um, and so oral opioid blockers, so oral naltrexone has actually been shown to increase the probability of an overdose death because really? the medication is there. Yeah. It's there for about 12 hours and then it goes away. And you okay. have somebody that's completely opioid naive um, the next morning when they wake up. Yeah. Um, the injectable form of this medication works really well for a small number of people. Um, and the key is they have to remember to get the shot every month. Um, and sometimes the injection is very expensive. Um, and unfortunately, it's been my experience that not only have I had people overdose and die as a, in the context of relapse with this medicine on board because 
they relapsed at the very end of the one month cycle, right? And basically had okay. none of the blockade effect there. Yeah. But also it's, it can be expensive and, um, and it takes a little bit of work to, to land somebody on that medication. So the idea is that a blocker theoretically um, should be occupying all those receptors and, um, and the hope was that it would reduce craving in, in patients. It's exceptionally effective for alcohol use disorder, which seems counterintuitive that an opioid really? blocker that would work really well uh, for alcohol use disorder. In fact, um, these medicines as applied to alcohol use disorder double the probability of one year of abstinence from about 8% to about 15 to 16%. And they dramatically reduce heavy days of drinking. In fact, an 80% reduction in heavy days of drinking for people with a severe alcohol use disorder. That's and, incredible. And the way that that works is, is that the opioid blocker touches these opioid receptors in a way that reduces craving for alcohol far more than it does craving for, for opioids uh, comparatively in people that have an opioid use disorder versus an alcohol use disorder. Why is that? That's... It, that's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> we, have, we haven't figured that yeah. out. And that, that's the royal we, right, of, <laughs> of you know, the body of science. It likely has to do with how some of the things that happen behind those receptors mm -hmm. differ with respect to alcohol use disorder and opioid use okay. disorder. Are they using it in the field right now for alcohol use disorder, or is the stigma so great that it's just, although the numbers are there, it's not being used as much? It is being used more than it ever has in the past. What's so interesting is that the first research was published around alcohol use disorder and the oral medication that is generic $20 a month medicine uh, about 50 years ago. Wow. And, uh, and this, this, research, this research has just sort of uh, been picked up by uh, a lot of primary care physicians, addiction specialists as, uh, if you will, the medicalization of the recovery community and the, the treatment community, pardon me, um, has become more um, more unified. Um, in 2005, the, the injectable form of uh, naltrexone became available uh, with the primary indication of alcohol use disorder. It became indicated for opioid use disorder in 2010. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. I, so I don't want to get too off subject here, but when you say 50 years and uh, you know, the, the, the article was published 50 years ago and then, you know, we're about 20 years into this epi you know, opioid epidemic. Why is everything just taking so long? You know, I, again, I don't mean to get so off subject, but it's just, it just comes back to me. It's just, it's so beyond frustrating yet. We're just kind of tipping the iceberg into, you know, it seems like turning the tide a little bit, you know, slowly by slowly, but it's just as someone who, who has been afflicted by it and granted many uh, hundreds of thousands of millions of people have as well. Just what is taking so long? It's a great question. Um, my reflections on this are, are really threefold. Uh, the first is that there has been a longstanding tradition of what recovery is and what recovery isn't and rigid attachment to what that looks like at a variety of different levels at the community level at the treatment industry level, mm -hmm. and to a certain degree, even at the insurance payer level, has led to a very slow transformation um, with respect to, to this disease state. And when you mention that, you mean, 
I'm assuming uh, abstinence based versus non abstinence based. Is that correct? Abstinence only. Abstinence yeah, only. Yeah, abstinence only recovery. Yeah. I and mean, we have to remember it was controversial 25, 30 years yeah. ago for people in AA to admit that they were taking a medicine to treat their depression, even though treating depression in people with uh, a substance use disorder doubles the probability of abstinence at 12 months. So, you know, we have to acknowledge that that the the basis the basis of a biological disease like substance use disorder has to do with the mainframe, the biological mainframe of of the human brain. Mm -hmm. And if there are tools that can help assist somebody in being successful, it's important to call out the there's oftentimes a logical inconsistency between the broader goal and how the mission is actually accomplished. And I think that conflict um, resulted from um, the science of addictive disease being marginalized internally um, by a society that made a very conscious decision in the late 1970s and early 1980s to stigmatize, particularly mm -hmm. among the African-American community in the United States, the disease state. Mm -hmm. we, did, we, did not see, we did not see any favorable images associated with mandatory minimum sentencing for specific types of drugs, i.e. crack cocaine versus mm -hmm. powder cocaine. That was a discriminatory cultural decision that was made at the level of the criminal justice system of the United States. For-profit prison systems that still yep. exist around the United States um, are multi-billion dollar year businesses mm -hmm. keeping people incarcerated for untreated substance use disorder as the primary driver of the occupancy of those, of those systems. The good news um, is... is the tradition uh, of addiction treatment has continued to be strong and there has continued to be a foundation, but that the evolution through science and, and the movement, the movement in response to the opioid epidemic, uh, which has become so ubiquitous and tragic in its scope, affecting hundreds of thousands of individuals and families, that people are at least starting to pay attention in a way that's brought about meaningful change over the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, that, that third pillar is that things have moved. Science is improving. People are paying attention. And people who truly want to make a difference in the lives of others, uh, be that a family member, be that the patients that we serve, um, are unable anymore to, uh, to look away from the science and, and embrace yeah. best practices. Yeah. And that was the, you know, for us after my brother died, it was hard because there is so much science out there. Um, but yet, you know, addiction so, you know, stigmatized that, you know, you just, you, we didn't even recognize it. Um, we didn't know it was out there. We, you know. Um, and and uh, to speak to like addiction science is like starting to take more footing. I mean, just this morning I was reading an article about uh, implants in the brain that are to like help stem, uh, you know, like opioid addiction kind of instead of, you know, taking a pill or injection. Um, are you seeing more and more um, like diversity in treatments that are coming through like maybe translational medicine or, you know, these devices that are being released? Not yet. Um, I, I would say, uh, and I'd love to, 
to pivot us to the other classes of medication, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. Uh, it's great. I would love to pivot us back to the other classes of medication. Um, I'm really encouraged to see all of the interest that um, neuroscience and the knowledge that neuroscience has really opened up, particularly in the last decade, um, as molecular biology has just um, rapidly accelerated in terms of the speed in which we acquire knowledge, um, as well as a lot of the functional neuroimaging, meaning functional MRI scanning and functional PET scanning. Um, a lot of that work was, you know, pioneered by um, Dr. Amen and uh, also by Dr. Nora Volkow at the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And, and they've got some very interesting TED Talks uh, that I would yeah. route people to uh, consider viewing. Um, in the end, we have uh, an emerging body of technology and we also have to balance uh, what's clinically indicated uh, and approved by the FDA versus what's experimental technology. Um, my hope ultimately is that we can avoid the need for brain implants by becoming a healthier society, becoming a trauma-informed society um, that is able to provide education, allow people to make improved decisions. Um, and, and it's difficult because I, we don't necessarily see that when we're talking about alcohol use in uh, the aging American population, when we look at nicotine use in the age of uh, vaping mm -hmm. uh, for young adults as well. Right. Um, uh, sorry, I was just going to you mentioned vaping. Is, so we go back to tobacco use back in the 90s, um, you know, where the tobacco companies were, you know, obviously targeting straight towards the teenagers, uh, you know, the 10-year-olds the to 18-year-olds with the cool jackets and everything else. Um, with the vaping now, does that correlate into uh, more substance abuse um, as they get older? Or It's a great question, Eric. I can't speak to vaping specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have um, a strong body of evidence that um, vaping specifically leads to an increased risk of substance um, use or substance use disorder. What we can say is that nicotine use overall has been uh, shown to identify a cohort of people who are more likely to use other substances. Um, and we know that people who are more likely to use other substances, and specifically among young adults, those are alcohol and uh, cannabis. We do know that, that the increased probability of using other substances um, may be associated with mm. an increased risk of of developing a substance use disorder later on. So it's that risk-taking young adult uh, that makes a decision to use a substance that um, that identifies that cohort that is more likely to pick up another substance. Yeah. Uh, but it's not necessarily a gateway phenomenon or, or okay. a known logical progression. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can you speak to the power of like community being like part of the equation for um, you know addressing like uh, the addiction and just like addiction services? Absolutely. So, so when we think about the primary remedy for people suffering from a substance use disorder, the primary remedy after we think about stabilizing somebody's brain um, through a process of detoxification, if that's clinically indicated, or the treatment of underlying depression or anxiety, is getting people outside of themselves and between others. And we know that this is a disease of isolation. This is a disease of shame. And, and that Having people share their experience, strength, and hope with other people 
um, and, and getting out of cycles of isolation um, is a way for people to remain safer and more engaged and start to have the opportunity to experience the benefits associated with abstinence from substance. Uh, from substance use in that regard. I think another important part of the equation is to acknowledge that this is imperfect. Um, yeah. it, it is extremely rare for somebody to um, start the process of, of moving um, away from substances and to do that in a, in a perfect, logical fashion. Um, it is absolutely imperfect. Relapse is part of the cycle of use. And one of the challenges historically uh, within the recovery industry has been the expectation of uh, total abstinence or the expectation of perfection um, right at the very beginning uh, when, when that is actually least likely to occur for an individual that's moving on a recovery pathway. Um, and so, so when we think about the power of that community, uh, the context needs to be understanding that, that the person that's working on the recovery pathway is going to have an imperfect path, that they're allowed to have an imperfect path. Yeah. That's difficult for families in particular, many of whom have reached their last straw at the time a person enters treatment for the first time, much less the fourth or fifth time. Are there any tools for those you know, family members or the loved ones around somebody that's going through that type of journey? Is there anything that they can use or they should know to like help them keep going or you know, to be more understanding? couple of things, Greg. Uh, first off, I mentioned earlier uh, the concept of participating in um, Al-Anon or Narcanon meetings. Uh, these are community-based, free, 12-step uh, oriented support programs for family members who have a loved one in active substance use disorder. Uh, the value of being with other people who are having that same lived experience cannot be um, stressed highly enough. Um, incredibly important. The second piece is to become informed. And, and I would encourage people to become informed uh, not from um, industry, uh, not from industry, but rather from, from science. And what do I mean there? Google search. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Google is also Dr. Uh, Google. Is always a risky <laughs> thing, right? But when, when Dr. Google lands you on the National Institute of Drug Abuse website or the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration website, and that's NIDA.gov and SAMHSA, S-A-M-H-S-A.gov, respectively, now you're talking about real content. You're talking about real science. And, mm -hmm. uh, and there are great resources there for individuals seeking a recovery pathway um, that talk about all those options, which we should get back to, uh, uh, associated with the treatment of, yeah. of opioid use disorder. Yeah, yeah, I, and I can speak to Narconon. I, I went to one, uh, uh, unfortunately, after my brother passed. and But it was reflecting on it, though, uh, or back on it, it was pretty. It was very empowering to see the community because you know he go around. There was I think about thirty people there that day, and each one had a story about a loved one, and just having that community and being able to express themselves to someone else, you could just kind of see it. Just kind of took that weight off their shoulder for at least you know whatever maybe five, ten, fifteen minutes, um, but just have that community to talk to. And um, again, I, I wish you know uh, we were informed earlier about these, but uh, you know. Uh, but they are out there and, and definitely worth uh, going to. So um, so now let's put it back to uh, the uh, – we're talking about recovery in terms of opioid use disorder. Is that what we're going to pivot back to? Okay. Because so we got the opioid blocker and then we were going to go down to 
I'm not sure what the next one is. No worries. <laughs> oh, that, that's my that's job. Here, yeah. That's my job, right? So we talked about the uh, opioid blocker, naltrexone, yes. both the pill form of it and also the um, injectable form. Um, we also have uh, what are called partial agonist medications. And a partial agonist medicine talks to the receptors and partially activates the receptors. And by partially activate, this, that does not mean uh, that the vast majority of people taking these medicines are getting loaded from, from taking these medicines. Um, this is about keeping the receptor open far enough to create activation. And what we know is that um, it creates enough release of dopamine mm -hmm. that people feel well enough to begin the process of engaging in a recovery pathway. They feel well enough to explore whether or not they're interested in getting the divorce from that substance that has given them that 5,000 or that 10,000 yeah. dopamine release. And so uh, the, the partial agonist medication is buprenorphine. And buprenorphine um, is contained in a couple of different uh, formulations. Typically, it's in combination with an opioid blocker that's there only to prevent abuse. It's not there to do anything other than to prevent people from abusing the medicine in a more direct manner. Um, and these are really useful medicines. Uh, the I mentioned before um, the use of either um, a partial agonist buprenorphine or a full agonist uh, methadone was associated with an 800% reduction in a month-over-month -month relapse rate with people with uh, opioid use disorder. Uh, so these are medicines most people would recognize the name Suboxone. That's a trade name. I do my best to avoid using trade names, uh, and I'm not endorsing any uh, particular product. Um, but buprenorphine-containing products um, have become available in the United States since 2004, and they became available very much in response to the tidal wave of the opioid epidemic mm -hmm. um, uh, here in the United States. Uh, that medicine became available commercially back in the early 1980s in Europe um, and was very much instrumental in helping turn the tide of a wave of opioid epidemic that occurred, primarily heroin. Um, at that time, we in the United States, we started with, we've always had a heroin problem, but we started yeah. with prescription opioids in the 90s, and that led to our existing heroin and fentanyl problem today. Mm -hmm. So buprenorphine works by partially activating those receptors. It helps people feel well. It helps people uh, not experience really severe depression or anxiety or another term that we would refer to as anhedonia, which is a the, the state of having a lack of desire to do much of anything at all. Um, and most importantly, um, people are able to oftentimes avoid um, a cycle of homelessness or avoid a cycle of joblessness uh, leading to subsequent homelessness and interrupt their use in a way where they can continue to engage in their day-to-day -day life. And that's incredibly rewarding. It's incredibly rewarding for people to be able to step into a treatment program that has a much lower barrier entry point, mm -hmm. meaning great, we can come see you in, you can come see us in the office. And, and if you want a little bit of additional behavioral support, we can get you into some groups. And, and there are many different treatment providers in the Portland metropolitan area um, that, that provide these services.
we can we can provide and and those those treatment individuals rather those treatment providers can can offer anything from medication support to up to nine hours a week of of group and for some people their lives just don't facilitate nine hours of group Mm -hmm. Uh, for other people they're absolutely not interested in their first couple of months to enter group and maybe they identify later on that they probably would benefit for, from some groups. So the idea is flexibility in terms of meeting a patient where they're at. Um, that's a trauma-informed approach. And it also yeah. is a lifestyle-based approach that allows people to be the mom or dad that they need to be mm-hmm. in, in conjunction with being a full-time uh, worker and employee. Yeah. And I would say the same thing um, and, and the same opportunity exists for people receiving um, methadone services. And so methadone is a full opioid agonist and that fully activates the opioid receptor and uh, and and ultimately helps support brain dopamine release um, at baseline. And uh, methadone is probably the most stigmatized and also the most misunderstood medication um, of them all to support patients in recovery. It's been commercially available in the United States since 1969 and, um, a very long time. And the, um, the only way that people can receive methadone for, uh, the treatment of opioid use disorder is through a federally designated opioid treatment program an OTP. And that is a daily dispensing program. So there's a, a much higher frequency of touch um, there's equal efficacy for much of the population between buprenorphine mm-hmm. and and methadone, um, but there are there there is a segment of the population that does seem to do better with methadone services, um, and uh, and unfortunately there's an incredible amount of stigma recognizing that um, there's difficulty for many people in going to a clinic uh, once a day, yeah. uh, six days a week. Um, that oftentimes people either don't want to be seen there, right, or or you know in a, in a place where there's a large amount of of daily dispensing taking place, there's a large number of people there as well. Yeah. So so recognizing that not everybody's in the same place with respect to their recovery, um, these are are centers that people don't oftentimes don't want to have in their backyard, right? But I would argue as well that um, the evidence is incredibly overwhelming that. Um, Receiving medicine as a medicine, mm-hmm. not taking medicine as a drug, yeah. um, is saving the lives of hundreds of thousands of people every day in the United States who suffer from a severe opioid use disorder. Yeah. And I think people forget that is, again, the end result is saving lives. You know, so uh, 700,000 people since 1998, 99 have died of a drug overdose. So, yeah, it's, um, again, at the end of the day, it's it's all about saving lives. So, um, going back to, you know, to, to methadone and stigmatizing it, what, what's with the barrier in terms of the FDA of, you know, putting so many, uh, blocks in place. So, you know, a doctor can only prescribe methadone to X amount of patients, um, where they can just, but basically write scripts all day for, for Oxy or Vicodin or whatever it may be. Yes. Um, I'm sorry, I said the DEA, not the Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm going to correct you a little bit, Eric, in, in that, um, methadone can only be obtained by a patient for the treatment of opioid use disorder at a, at a daily dispensing opioid treatment program. Um, what you're, you're referring to specifically though, is the, um, DATA, D-A-T-A, waiver. The D-A-T-A waiver is what allows um, a physician, a nurse practitioner, or a physician assistant with an ex-DEA number the ability to treat patients with opioid use disorder in an outpatient clinic-based method 
uh, or a clinic-based model. And you're right, there are limits of 30 uh, for the first year with some exceptions, 100 for the second year, and a maximum of 275. And so you're, you're absolutely right. Um, a person with a DEA certificate can write an essentially unlimited amount of medication uh, mm -hmm. for pain, oxycodone, hydrocodone, hydromorphone, those sorts of substances. Um, but we're limited with respect to um, access for uh, buprenorphine. And um, I, I have a mixed opinion about those limits. Uh, I've seen those limits be very useful in some communities. Mm -hmm. I've also seen those, uh, those limits be uh, very harmful in others. And, and so my personal opinion is that um, I think that the data waiver uh, limits are, are ludicrous. Um, and that said, there are always, unfortunately, bad apples out there. Sure. Yeah. Do you uh, think there will ever be like access uh, legislation done on the front end of the side of like prescribing uh, opioid, opiate like painkillers? There's been an incredible amount of work uh, related to that, and um, we know from great research that the prescription of opioids for persistent pain conditions is really a grade C recommendation from the Institute of Medicine. It, there's very limited evidence that it is of any benefit and, um, and very low dose, uh, relatively speaking, low dose uh, opioid prescribing um, has become the norm across the United States. Um, the CDC in particular, and many states have adopted the CDC standards. We've adopted those uh, here yeah. in Oregon with respect to maximum caps on morphine equivalent dosing per day. Um, we've at least seen a plateauing and a, and a slight contraction in the overall amount of opioid that is prescribed across the United States. So thank goodness we've turned the tide there. But we have a population of patients uh, in the United States that are still very much physically dependent mm -hmm. and to a certain degree, um, Probably uh, there's some, uh, actually we know there's some substance use disorder represented um, among that patient population, uh, recognizing that, that the substance use disorder may be associated with the, the alcohol that's being used along with, yeah. with the opioids that are being taken. Right. So, so for me, uh, you know, I've had real trouble with doctors for the last, you know, uh, 20 years in terms of education. As a patient, you go in, you know, you expect, you know, to trust your doctor and for them to prescribe um, the medication you may need. Uh, you know, for me, I, I've told this story already is, you know, I've had two back surgeries, um, my wisdom teeth pulled, uh, you know, I, uh, at college, you know, go to the campus doctor, very, they can, they'll just write a prescript very liberally. Um, not once in my life, and I'll tell the story as well, last uh, March when I went to urgent care because of my hernia disc flared up. Uh, told the story, my brother just passed, don't want any pain pills, nothing like that, just some high-strength ibuprofen. The doctor um, you know, tells me uh, you know, how the doctors are partly to blame for this epidemic, but oh, by the way, are you sure you don't want pain pills? Not once have I ever been educated about the, the potential addiction um, or the dangers of, of opioids, um, hydrocodone, oxycodone. Why, or the education of alternatives. Yeah, you know, or alternatives. Very rarely Why, talked about. you know, because I saw a bill in California that was passed a couple of years ago where it says um, if you prescribe X uh, morphine equivalents, you must educate the patient. So why not? Why don't we start working upstream where we can catch them at the doctor's office where the patient, you know, is supposed to be um, educated uh, instead of waiting until you know, the, the, the person's already potentially has a substance use disorder and are, you know, almost too far gone. 
Um, I just it still frustrates me to this day that even with all this media and everything around it, that doctors still don't want to educate the patient. Yeah, I certainly can't speak for any you know one particular physician. Um, I, I, I am not surprised, unfortunately, however, that you've had that experience, Eric. Um, I think we can always be doing a better job to um, educate our patients. Uh, for the listeners of this podcast, I tell people, if you encounter a medicine or a substance that makes you feel better than it should, that lets you know that that dopamine reward pathway has been activated. Mm -hmm. And it's important to pay attention to that. If you have a family member or a loved one that has a minor surgery and they take their pain pill and they seem really different, in particular, if they seem activated or really happy or a little bit disinhibited and um, might be bouncing around a little bit more than you would expect, mm -hmm. um, that's something to take note of and be willing to have that conversation of, yeah. is that making you feel a little bit better than it should? Because that's probably not a good thing for you in that regard. Yeah. I feel like, um, just like we were talking, you're asking earlier about slow, slow to change, slow to adopt. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, medicine is an incredibly conservative and, and place, um, except when it's not. Like when we were marketed to by the drug companies, uh, being told very clearly that um, their products were safe for our patients. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, unfortunately, the United States has really suffered from an over-marketing of, of medications to patients in general yep. um, and an unclear compact, right, an unclear uh, relationship and agreement of, of who we are as, uh, as providers of expertise and service, right, mm -hmm. um, versus the very retail-oriented yeah. uh, approach to healthcare delivery in the United States right now. Do you think there would uh, would such a law saying? Um, and again, I don't want to you know discriminate because I know opioids have a very you know useful case for for people in chronic pain. Um, but do you think instituting a law where forcing a doctor, no matter the morphine equivalent, saying, "Hey, we're going to prescribe you this," you know, say Vicodin or Oxy, whatever it may be, but we also have to prescribe you a prescription of Narcan? Because I, I think for me, um, and if my family was there when, say, I got a surgery and say, hey, here's a prescription, go fill it, but you know, get this Narcan, go, what the hell is Narcan? Oh, it's an opioid reversal drug. Why would I need that for my prescription? You know, that's that's the frustrating part is is you look at the OHA data of you know combining you know morphine, hydrocodone, and oxycodone. There's still six hundred thousand prescriptions roughly per quarter in Oregon of four million people, and yet. The prescription of, of Narcan is like two thousand or three thousand. The, ra the, the ratio up. is so far off, and yet again, I think that education working upstream is, it, to me, is ludicrous. I just I don't understand it. And to be able to educate the patient and and force them to say, "Whoa, why why would I want an opioid reversal drug for this prescription that you're giving me? Because I just broke my foot or my wrist hurts. You know, why would I need that?" Um, that, that to, to me is just I, I'm you know sorry for ranting I'm just it's this the very frustrating part about seeing the data and I know prescriptions are coming down big time um, especially here in Oregon I think it's like eight percent year over year um, which is good to see but again just uh, educating the patient <laughs> it just it's so frustrating <laughs> and like you mentioned it just it takes a long time um, especially in the medical community so I I'm happy to know that we're moving in in a direction that um, 
is empowering less people to be at greater risk. How's that for a sentence? <laughs> and uh, through through you know a reduction in the prescription of opioids uh, for chronic pain conditions that they're really not that useful for. Yeah. And most importantly, we're seeing a real expansion of the knowledge base, the training around mm. the risks of medication. That that is translating, I think, yeah. with the younger generation of doc. Now that there are people that are almost twenty years younger than I am now coming out yeah. in their early thirties, you know, into the workforce with a completely different set of knowledge both with respect to pain and opioids, but um, even more so with respect to um, the treatment of addiction. And so I think we're, we're seeing brave conversations being held by um, clinicians um, in a new way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people's positive intention in terms of making a difference and giving people who suffer from substance use disorder fully informed yeah. um, data around how to help more people uh, get better yeah. Um, and and move in a direction of of um, improving their health overall mm-hmm. is is something that I've definitely seen um, in the last twenty years. Yeah. The the cost, and I want to acknowledge your disclosure and and the loss that you personally and your family have suffered. Um, you know, we we shouldn't have those losses. Uh, and I agree with you that we as a nation um, failed each other um, as as a um, as a healthcare delivery. Uh, system um, as a treatment system, um, we uh, were slow to respond, and um, I want to end on a positive note yeah. that that at least we're seeing, um, in light of the tragedies, in light of the loss, in light of the the real catastrophe that our society has been through. Um, we're not going to win this with supply side interdiction. We're going to yeah. win this through response, through evidence based practice, and through awareness and knowledge. Yeah. I do have one last question for you. So like a 30-second elevator pitch. Um, uh, it came to my attention about a town hall where, where um, people stood up and said, you know, uh, talking about the homeless crisis here in, in, in Portland and also the drug crisis, uh, basically saying um, this is unacceptable as citizens. Uh, you know, these people should be, you know, why can't we just own, uh, open up the Wapato jail, um, throw them in there, and they can use drugs there or whatever it may be. Um could you give the audience like a 30 second elevator pitch of if they hear that, um, what you would say to, say to them about, about addiction and also homelessness? These are complex conditions and a simple answer of, of warehousing people away is um, not a long-term solution to a chronic disease state and, and a set of complex social issues. Um, we know that in parts of the country that have much lower housing cost, there are not uh, the same percentage of people living outside. Mm-hmm. Um, we have exceptionally high housing costs on the West Coast, and that's the primary driver. So when, when we as um, a region Uh, continue to invest and uh, county and state government has made significant investment in um, supportive recovery housing, transitional housing and shelter in the last several years. We're just we're just on the upswing in terms of capacity. Um, There will be uh, a a transformation with respect to uh, the management of this population. Um, And we have to just simply recognize it, it that it's much even for the most hardened conservative person that um, that wants to 
see a different response. Um, it's so much less expensive to care for this population if we actually take care of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love so, that answer. Yeah. And it's the truth. There's great evidence that it is the most fiscally conservative as well as humanistic thing that we can do. Um, and, and I'll back that up with, with a bunch of different population health studies. And so um, there can be total alignment, right, that this is not a political issue, right, that there is actually a single pathway that leads to less cost and um, better human outcomes. And, yeah. and that's why I love working at, at the tip of the spear with yeah. respect to this space. Thank you so much for the work you do also, Dr. Mendenhall. And thanks for the work that Central City does for our community and for those um, experiencing homelessness and um, addiction, all those, uh, all those afflictions that um, need to be treated. Yeah. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, yeah. Eric. It's Thank been you my for pleasure. your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Henry's Uncle podcast. Please take a second to like, subscribe, or rate us. But more importantly, please share this podcast with anyone who may be interested in the topics discussed so they know they are not alone. As always, at Henry's Uncle, you are loved, never judged. Hey, everyone. We are really excited here at Henry's Uncle. We have formed a partnership with the Cash App. The Cash App is an app that empowers people to control their own finances. Same here at Henry's Uncle, where we want to empower people to share their own experiences around their addiction. Uh, When you download the Cash App, enter the referral code Henry's Uncle. You get $5. Henry's Uncle gets $5. It's a win-win for everyone. You can download the Cash App on your Apple or Android device. Thank you.